night Talking movies with two guys named Mike They usually cover films that win goals But this series is all Tarantino Rumors and a few of these Michael Madsons in like five Here we go talking the movies of Q MMOs reviewing movies of Q's Tarantino The rewatch series brought to you by MMO And we're back! July 21st, 2019, the 18th year and one day anniversary of the Cinematic Hall of Fame epic featuring Billy Crystal and Julia Roberts, of course, talking about America's Sweethearts, which would hopefully be the adaptation and the source material for the Fall Out Boy song that would come another, uh, what, let's say, eight years after that in the, uh, the long-awaited album Folly Ado, which I think is Fall Out Boy's best album. Uh, a lot of people disagree with that. Any thoughts here? I'm trying really hard not to engage <laughs> these, uh, these things that I do not approve of at the beginning of each episode these days. This is Mike, Mike, and Oscar. That is co-host also Mike. I, am I also like Mike Fall Mike. Out Boy. It's a great I do, album. I do, I do. Folly Ado. Oh, under the cork tree. Not great, but Folly Ado. Good comeback. That's my two cents. But we're not talking about any of that today, though we will be talking about some songs, maybe surprisingly a lot of good songs in a soundtrack to this movie as we do another entry into the Tarantino rewatch series we were covering. Django Unchained, Quentin Tarantino's 2012 film starring Jamie Foxx and Christoph Waltz along with Leonardo DiCaprio. Another one that found him great success both critically at the box office and at the Academy. We're going to cover all of that and more. But first, Mike, let's talk about what differentiates these Tarantino episodes from our regular everyday Oscar Sprint profiles. Yeah, we got eight new segments for these reviews. We, uh, we do a year in review. We contextualize you guys. We do an Oscar lens throughout that we also do for OS. Uh, we uh, share our first watch stories, what makes Quentin dance during our review of the, the soundtrack, like, mm-hmm. you, like you said. We talk about all the homages that Tarantino makes to other movies. We perform a scene, and we do a great job at it every I take, time. I take resentment. I've never performed a scene in my life. It's just, you just be. It's, 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 <laughs> <laughs> what, what is an act? What is an actor? <laughs> Trademark Tarantino is all our best scenes, so we've come up with a creative way to do that in a three-pronged format. Yeah. Screenwriting advice via Tarantino. We'll analyze this script a little bit. And then we finish with uh, Easter eggs and the connections to the Tarantino-verse, which is thoroughly perplexing me of late, <laughs> but I'm, I'm into it because it's all about speculation. So we have all of that to look forward to in this episode. If you've not joined us before for a Tarantino episode, what it is, aside from those eight new segments, is that we basically break it down into two parts. You have the first half of every Tarantino episode will be your non-spoiler review, talking about the specs, the box office productions, we put it up the Oscar lens and see what happened the year it came out. Then we have that spoiler warning. That's when we're going to have that performance by that up-and-coming theater group that Mike and I may be a part of. Uh, uh, that second part is where it's going to be all spoiler-filled, so if you've not seen the movie, if it's been a while, you don't want it spoiled for you, don't worry. You're in the safe place here, the first half of this. Like all Tarantino rewatch series episodes, and pretty much all Pixar and all Oscar Sprint profiles, the first half are all spoiler-free. You won't get anything spoiled with the plot until after the spoiler warning. That'll be in the second half, so without further ado, let's get started here talking about Django Unchained. Michael, run us down the cast and crew for this movie. So what did Quentin do between 2009 and 2012 when Django was released. Well, he put out the uh, whole bloody affair, which was 2011's full Kill Bill movie that I still can't find, and uh, nobody has told me 
how to find that, so I guess it can't be found. Uh, so the, again, I, I ask you folks, let me know how to find that, and I will watch it, and we will report back. Yeah, it presented the way Tarantino always wanted to, with one long-standing film there as opposed to two. Tarantino was the presenter for Rizzas, The Man with the Iron Fist, a Russell Crowe film in 2011, I believe, uh, which was just absolutely terrible. Didn't like it, huh? Absolutely not. I don't think I ever saw it. It was bad. Anyway, legend has it, Tarantino was writing a book on Sergio Corbucci, because of course he effing was. This guy just finds things to do. It's like, oh, I'm not needed on American Idol this week? All right, I'll write a a diatribe biography unauthorized about someone else. I was writing about how his movies have this evil Wild West, a horrible Wild West. It was surreal, okay? It was it, it dealt with a lot of fascism, all right? Uh, so I'm, I'm writing this whole piece on this, and I'm thinking, I don't really know if Sergio was thinking this while he was doing this. But I know I'm thinking it now, and I can do it. So... Accent and, and impersonation aside, that's actually a very important quote. It it's, is. It's cited many times. He gave it in a certain interview uh, when talking about Django, but it's cited many times. And it's actually going to also be the basis for when I talk about specs and how this movie got made. So uh, keep in mind that. So basically Tarantino's saying that he had the cachet as a director to make this film when films weren't being made about slavery, about America's dark and horrible past, as he's quoted to saying... The fact that he chose the genre of spaghetti western is something that Spike Lee, amongst many others, had some issues with. He said American slavery was not a Sergio Leone spaghetti western. It was a holocaust. My ancestors are slaves stolen from Africa. I will honor them. So there's a lot. This is not the first time we brought up Spike Lee's name and seeing things, seeing the world differently from Tarantino. My question is... Haven't these guys gotten long enough and you think they could stand each other enough in their careers and they're mature enough? I would love to see a face-to-face. No. Just, yeah, just a debate or a talk about the principle of filmmaking and what lens they seek from. I mean, tell me people wouldn't sign up for that or pay for that on pay-per-view for like oh 10, 15 God. bucks. Absolutely. Let's air it all out. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're both guys we respect in the business. Absolutely. And, and we re- agree with Spike Lee to, a, to yeah. an extent. No question. But we also kind of agree with uh, Tarantino because sure. he does show the facet, fascism. He does show the realism. And the entire cast of Django Unchained, Jamie Foxx, who plays the titular character, Samuel Jackson, who plays Stephen, Carrie Washington, who plays Broomhilda, they spoke about the project in reverential tones and, and really loved the fact that, as Carrie Washington put it, they were walking on sacred ground, paying homage to their ancestors. Carrie Washington told a story about one of the extras in the film was a pastor, and the pastor said during a time where they were all exhausted and tired of picking cotton as extras, etc., the pastor said, guys, we are the answers to all our ancestors' prayers. Crazy. And we need to honor them with this performance because this movie is doing what it's trying to do. So we had Will Smith drop out. He was supposed to play Django for the longest time, so he didn't agree. Yes, yeah, so a couple of reports out there saying that Tarantino wrote this for Will Smith and was turned to Smith turned him down. But we also had the cast attract uh, many other big names. We had Leonardo DiCaprio playing Calvin Candy. Christoph Waltz wins another Oscar as Dr. King Schultz. Walton Goggins plays Billy Crash. Jonah Hill, Zoe Bell, James Remar also star. Don Johnson's in this. We all know the cast of this movie by now, so I'm not going to do a long rundown. 
But I do think it's worth watching some of those interviews, some of the promotional Q&As. They really clarified a lot of things for me. See how much it meant to these people. They gave me a framework on which to watch this movie. Yeah. And to learn from this movie. And that, that is definitely in support of Tarantino. I'm sure Spike Lee and actors who have been, you know, loyal to him in his career, you know, there's another side to this, sure. no question, but uh, th- th- this was very helpful, this study. Yeah, I think uh, providing a framework or getting some kind of framework with which to view this movie through could be incredibly helpful. I because... thought you weren't going to end with a preposition, but you still did. <laughs> Bad well, we, we reviewed this movie once prior quickly during one of our retrospectives a year ago or so doing the 2012 Best Supporting Actor yes. race. We didn't have really that, we didn't go deep into the research of it rather than just viewing it as it was and as it was presented. And we both saw huge problems with it. And both of us kind of rewatching it now, having done more research and digging deeper into it, I think we do view it from a different angle. So there is yeah, some credence no to the idea that providing having a different framework or having a different lens to view this through could change your perspective and change your outlook. Yeah, you got some specs, Mike. Yeah, let's talk about Django Unchained. So if you want to talk Pete Tarantino, this is probably it. And considering mm-hmm. Django only debuted Christmas Day of 2012, we aren't that far removed from the mountaintop here in 2019 right now. For both a critical and a box office perspective, Django would likely be considered by all accounts Tarantino's best received work from a well-rounded perspective. Made for a budget of $100 million, again on behalf of the Weinstein Company, Django would go on to land an 86-91 score split on Rotten Tomatoes. An 8.4 on IMDb, placing it at number 62 on the site's top 250 movies list. Wow. And a meta rating of 81. And probably more important than all of that, it ended up making nearly half a billion dollars worldwide. Yeah. $425 million worldwide box office would exceed Inglorious Bastards' previous high gross for a Tarantino film by about $42 million domestically and more than $100 million total worldwide. That's incredible box office. So this is the high point. This is certainly the biggest uh, of Tarantino's career thus far. We'll see if Hollywood maybe can match it, but the follow-up, The Hateful Eight, which will be our final in the Tarantino rewatch series, did not. Perhaps either most ironically or most telling depending on your level of cynicism towards the director. There was a complete lack of controversy or question for a change with regards to Tarantino actually putting this script together. Uh, for a man who spent his career circling one scandal or questionable decision after another, yeah. Tarantino, by all accounts, was able to put together Django without much of anything happening. As the story goes, he was fascinated by the spaghetti western and had a particular group of directors from that subgenre that he found most appealing. One amongst that group would be director, like also Mike told you, Sergio Carbucci, who at one time was at the helm of his own spaghetti western movie entitled Django. Of course. So enraptured with Corbucci's career was Tarantino that he had decided to write a book on the prolific director's film career. And there's many sites out there that are going to tell the story that is a simple ABC storyline, deriving the idea from Quentin Tarantino's quotes himself, the one that I told you to pay attention when also Mike ran it down. The story goes, basically Tarantino is writing the Corbucci book, became inspired enough to come up with the story to Django in his head, and then gave up on the Corbucci biography in order to bang out a screenplay for his own Django movie. And while that's all true, as again Tarantino himself would be quoted as saying, it's interesting to note that the idea of addressing the African-American plight with regards to their stories during wartime is something that Tarantino had brought up on his own a couple times throughout the years. Uh, I've noticed this in doing research for these specs sections throughout the different movies. So whereas the process of the Corbucci research is probably the last straw in terms of Tarantino's finally being motivated enough to work on the screenplay, some digging would suggest that this was clearly a plot and a type of story that he had kicked around in his mind for probably close to a decade. He certainly referenced it when he was talking about what happened with the writing of the Inglorious Bastards script. 
Yeah, he was going to make a John Brown abolitionist movie for the longest time. And True, he yeah. backed out of that as well. I, I know that was the, the rumor I was most familiar with. I thought that was what he was going to do after Inglorious Bastards because he was talking about it throughout the Inglorious Bastards right. prep. So I was surprised when he came back with another Spaghetti Western yeah. with Django there. Since we can't talk about Tarantino specs without talking about the wondrous editor who is Sally Mankey, it's notable that this is in fact the first Tarantino film not edited by Mankey, who sadly passed in 2010, and instead mm-hmm. the job went to Fred Raskin, who had helped with the editing on Kill Bill and was familiar to Quentin all the same. Django would land itself five nominations at the 2013 Academy Awards, and would also end up winning Tarantino his first Oscar since Pulp Fiction some 18 years prior, as he took home the prize for Best Original Screenplay once again. The other victory for the movie went to Christoph Waltz, who again would win a trophy for Best Supporting Actor, though the film itself would lose in the categories of Sound Editing, Cinematography, and Best Picture, the last of which would end up going to Argo. Plot premise reads, Michael, with the help of a German bounty hunter, a freed slave sets out to rescue his wife from a brutal Mississippi plantation owner. Makes sense. That's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> right Speaking on. of ABC, yeah. <laughs> uh, what was your first watch story on this? You know, I don't remember. <laughs> I know I have seen this before. I remember having thoughts about watching this before. I don't think our retrospective was my first look at it, but I could be wrong, but I don't remember. You don't remember. I'm almost positive I didn't see this in theaters. This segment is ruined. (laughs) I tried racking my brain, and I just cannot come up with it. So you didn't see it in theaters. You watched it on your own. I'm pretty sure it was at my own at my house. But I could be lying to you right now. I don't know. Do you have a story? Save this. The day after (laughs) Christmas, I went in 2012, and I just remember a watch where I kept looking around watching the audience members. Okay. And it was, thankfully, a diverse group. It was a sold-out crowd. And I just was like, I was squirming and freaking out the whole movie. Sure. Because it was so brutal. And I remember just watching, wanting to watch people. Like, what are their, what's going to be their reactions? How's this guy feeling about it? How's that person feeling about it? And it was a whole gamut of emotions. You had people cheering at the end. You had people dealing with a lot of uh, issues, literally moaning, like, oh, my God, throughout this movie. And... It was an active watching experience, active active viewership, I would say, for certain. This movie really stirs it up in you. So I remember that, and it's been the same for me every time, even if I'm not looking around, if I'm watching by myself. But I go through the gamut of emotions every time. It's like a visceral watching experience. It wears on you. I couldn't watch it a second time in the study. I mean, we're under a time crunch, but also... I had the opportunity, and I didn't go with it. I went for YouTube videos, other study materials, etc. It's like I can't, I can't do it again. Interesting. Even though it was a roller coaster for for us, we were texting each other both times that we were watching it, and we're like, "Oh my god, this scene! Oh my god, that scene!" So we got a lot to talk about here. We're gonna work the Oscar lens throughout that Mike analyzed for us already in specs. So we'll start right there with cinematography. Life of Pi won. Anna Karenina, Django Unchained, Lincoln, and Skyfall were the other nominees. Skyfall, Roger Deakins, their notable name. Mm-hmm. The nature goods are here. The food goods are here. We got crash zooms, Mike. We got establishing shots that some are horrific, some are incredible. We have 
production design where he's moving those big cranes throughout these settings. What did you think of the cinematography? I thought Jamie Foxx wore the flyest ass suit <laughs> I have ever seen a human being pull the off. The costumes, yes. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the look of this film. Let's yeah, talk about it. Yeah, it, uh, the costumes through and through. I mean, for, to, being, to be uh, appropriate for the time and place and the manner... It, it, they were spectacular, absolutely spectacular. Well, Leo's costume means something yep. for Leo. He's a Francophile. And you have the dentist. He's supposed to look like a dentist, but it also has to be form-fitting to the point where he can just get his gun out. And and Django, the first suit he ever gets to wear, so it's, it's going to be something that he always dreamt of. It's based on someone. It's on the Wikipedia page. I didn't Ma- write it down. Yeah, there's a Machiavellian yeah. thing. It's based on the prints from covers, okay. the, uh, the uh, paintings of whatever Machiavelli wrote there. Uh, sure. There's a Tupac song about it as well, which I'm more familiar with. <laughs> uh, it jumps off the screen. It really does. It's so bright and vibrant. As far as the cinematography, you know, I like what Rob Richardson always does with, with Quentin. I've mm-hmm. made my case about him hopefully being up for awards also this year as well with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I wasn't blown away with the cinematography in this one, as I've been in pretty much every other Tarantino movie. This still has its goods. I mean, mm-hmm. Django riding across the plains at the very end. We see the the destruction of what he's done in the background. There's that fire burning passes and riding on the horse. Approaching Candyland for the first time is such a beautiful shot. Kind of a zoom down. It must be a crane shot yes. taking it from the front. So there's certainly goods here. I don't know that I could put up a fight that it's more worthy of Skyfall or Lincoln even. Life of Pi. I, I would have Pi. trouble. It makes sense. Anna Karenina was incredible yeah. looking. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like, is it better than Lincoln right off the bat? No, probably right. not. Even Skyfall was was incredible cinematography. I agree with that. Now I'm happy for the first James Bond movie getting same her on there. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's probably the fourth or fifth for me. I think that food looks very tasty at times. I, <laughs> I that... talk about it when we get to trademark Tarantino, Michael. Beer, Don't worry. <laughs> beer looks really good. And I'm going to talk about he's the master of the master shot yeah. once again because the action really, it's incredible and it's incredibly beautiful. The surreal violence that you have, the real violence that you, that you have to have, it's, it's crazy. So let's get into the sound a little bit. Sound effects. Some of these are hyper-real. Some of these are based in absolute realism and horrifying. Some I still hear in my head right now, and I can't unhear them. So sound editing was a nomination. Makes a lot of sense. It's a rare tie between Skyfall and Zero Dark Thirty, Argo, and Life of Pi were the two other nominations there. Argo? Argo. What's Argo doing in this category? They were handing dossiers and going through airports. So probably somebody shuffled papers next to a microphone? And shuffled like, oh, papers here's your nomination. next to the microphone. He scratched his beard. <laughs> oh, I shaved. Can you scratch your beard? Yeah. yeah, yeah well, that. Right there. <laughs> so, yes, I agree. Hyperreal is a good way to put some of these sound effects that were done for effect on the movie. And just to heighten the grossness, for lack of a better term, in some areas. To put emphasis yeah. on, on various things. And thankfully, I think he spared us some other sounds. But, I mean, the crack of the whip, gee, dear God, I still hear that in my head. At The, the same sawing time, of the skull. Ugh. Yeah, at the same time, you got the beer. You know, and you hear you know the, the scrape of the foam off the beer, and that's delicious. So, right. Strangely enough, you get you get a whole gamut of emotions. Yeah, I just think editing, hearing stuff. I think this being nominated for editing is very, very proper. Again, I would have a tough time, especially Zero Dark Thirty, making the case for this to win sound editing over something like that. I agree. Let's uh, jump into original score. Morricone, Ennio Morricone, said that after this movie, he would never work with Tarantino again. He hated the violence in the film; it was too much for him. He didn't want his music used for such scenes. And then he somehow gave Tarantino permission to use. 
use a song that he had previously recorded for the Hateful Eight. Cooler heads prevailed, I guess. So that's a strange time. story. More that on that in the next episode. You have the theme from Django. And at the end of the opening credits, you have the, the quote, end with the friendly participation of Franco Nero, who mm-hmm. has a cameo in this film. Sure. I thought the score really worked at times. The the, the music really worked. And uh, we got a lot of options for what made Quentin dance here. So true to Tarantino form, he doesn't really have a score. He's got a soundtrack that doubles as a score. He doesn't right. really use instruments and heightening a lot of it. It happens. There's some of it. You but got Beethoven in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I don't I think for the most part what's gonna jump out at you is the songs that he used and my lord is this soundtrack awesome. It's if awesome. this I mean if this was anything again, if there's anything original about the score, I would advocate for it. But this soundtrack is so good. So the two songs I listened to the most after this film came out was Rick Ross's 100 Black Love Coffins. that song, love that scene. And who did that to you from John Legend? When Richie Haven's Freedom started playing, because it's the the, the basis for what uh, Tech 9 and Eminem would remake called Speedum. Sure. Sometimes I feel like I ne- Oh my God, I was ready to Excellent. go. <laughs> Excellent. And I I didn't write down the Rocky Mountain song, but there's a great song in front of the Rocky Mountains there for that montage. The famous song. Every montage, he, he, he kills with a different type of song. I mean, my God, the James Brown Tupac crossover song that he put into this movie. Sure. You want to fight someone when you're listening to the soundtrack. You're like, let's go. It <laughs> I'm you hyped. Up. Yeah. It really does hype you up. Thank God for that. <laughs> uh, Morricone did have Encora Key, Qui in this as well so what do you think made him dance the most do you have a pick i have an answer hang on because what made me dance the most was probably rick ross yeah i think that's fair for us to say uh even though we should not be dancing to rick ross no probably not not. we should not be dancing mike (laughs) well agree to disagree there there's a montage with django forming this partnership with schultz and they play I've Got a Name by Jim Croce, a crochet. Sure. Moving me down the highway. There it was. Moving me down the highway. There's the I Rocky, know I was grooving. Rocky and, Mountain song. Yeah, me and my little uh, my little white boy chair there, I'm sure if I was shaking my ass, I have no doubt Tarantino was grooving to that. I'm very upset that wasn't a John Denver song. <laughs> I thought it was. I didn't believe it. I had to Shazam it. I was like, really? All right. Though that was the song I was yeah. thinking of. So, us white Bad dancers. Yes. That's what we danced to. Yeah. The most. Yeah, I will admit it myself. (laughs) Although I love, my favorite song from this, I think was the Rick Ross song. I will listen to that Tupac and James Brown song. I'm putting that on my iPod. I love that song. I think the John Legend song was my favorite. That was great. To be honest, even though I probably danced a little more to Rick Ross, but that was such an establishing scene. Yeah. Even though it kind of got gross later on, the the triumphant scene is more the John Legend scene. Mm -hmm. So the Ted song got a nomination over the... uh, over the best original song. Yeah, I mean, Nora Jones was involved in the plot of Ted, so that was a she thank you. She is really good in that song. Yeah, Sky is. Falls Adele wins. Yeah, so that proper. makes sense. No argument there. <laughs> Suddenly from Les Mis, I get that. That's a big song in that movie. You're not happy with it. Uh, Before My Time, which was performed by Scarlett Johansson for the movie Chasing Ice and Pie's Lullaby from Life of Pie. So John Legend kind of got boxed out. These are all good songs. Yeah. It was a strong year. Makes sense. It was a strong year for for original song there. I, I don't think John Legend was the best song from the movie. Rick Ross should have been on I mean, I <laughs> I mean, it. Was, that was great. To review the performances, so Samuel L. Jackson, Don Johnson, Leonardo DiCaprio, and uh, Walton Goggins, they play some of the most evil villains that you're going to come across in movies. And I think these villains have become iconic movie villains at this point. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, Leo especially. Calvin Candy and Candyland is, yeah, yeah you could say that. It's, it's seeped in pop culture now. It's interesting that Tarantino has called Calvin Candy as the only one of his characters he truly despises. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very famous little Easter egg or anecdote, whatever you want to call it. I also, did you see who Don Johnson studied to be this character? He's mentioned it, I don't remember. Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> he said he studied Foghorn. I say, I say, that giant cartoon chicken from Looney Tunes to play this character of Big Daddy in this He's movie. He's a bit of a buffoon, yeah. and that makes some good sense. <laughs> On the flip side of all that, you have Django being a superhero, essentially, yes. which is great. And, and he's given that treatment, too. Even from the first time he takes off his cloak or his yeah. robe, whatever you want to call that, he's got the, the shot, and this is one of the highlights of the cinematography for me, the blocking of the light that Tarantino does in this is, is stupendous, whether it's him or Rob Richardson, whoever, but the blocking to make this the silhouette-type shots and make the lighting glean off the not only the bodies but also the face it, we, when the yeah. first time we see Django's face uh, it's spectacular it, it is and I love the fact that he's also a leader in this film all these people follow him in this movie and it's been and, and his mannerisms yeah. and I love that portrayal by the ensemble as well Carrie Washington is certainly a damsel in distress now she endures so much in this movie that she, she's almost like the toughest human being I've ever seen on film in, in many ways. She played fear very, very well, and she was terrified pretty much every time someone entered a room and she didn't see them coming. With good reason. That's why. I would have an issue overall if a female character was portrayed like this, just so overly worried and so overly fearful. But because every scene she's in in this movie, she's just being put to this inhumane like torture. It makes yeah. total sense. Definitely, and she's a hero in her own right. For, oh, certainly, certainly. For enduring yeah. what she has to endure. And, and I, I love her character that despite it all, you know, she still has these wonderful, you know, German conversations with uh, Dr. Schultz, Schultz etc. Yeah. So it, it, it works. Tarantino just made three movies in a row based on female superheroes, essentially. You know, so he's developed some credo. He's developed some ca- uh, currency to where right. he, can, he can do a damsel in distress I guess. Right. That's kind of how I feel. I mean, look, the, the subject matter of this movie is what it is at some point. You know, right. like you're not going to get out of the escape. You're not going to escape the fact that it's a movie about slaves. He decided to write it. Right. <laughs> so that's what it is. Finally, Christoph Waltz. He's great in this movie. We said that on our retrospective. We talked about how he has more screen time than the average supporting actor, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I still take issue with this. He should be, if not the lead, then he should be taking a, a secondary to Leo. Django's the lead, I guess, right. but at the same time, yeah, I, I would agree with you, and Leo probably should have been. You can't, the, the, the Academy's not going to nominate just a disgusting character, even if the performance is great. We've seen that in the past with Idris Elba, a beast of no nation. So do you think it was that? Or I do. Because I, do. Yeah. I, I think Samuel's great in this movie. I think You don't Leo's think it great. was, boy, we really don't want Leo's first Oscar to be a supporting one. Alan Arkin. <laughs> performance in Argo is fine. There's no way it's on par with Samuel, Leo, or Christoph Waltz. No I, way. I, I agree, but if Leo's nominated in this category, you don't think he wins? You think over he's too Christoph, disgusting to win? Over Christoph Waltz? I just think he's too disgusting to get nominated, All right. typically. Uh, that's the way the Academy's going. Like, we're not going to... I mean, I'm pitching a total conspiracy theory here, but I, I like for one of the Hollywood's leading men to get his first Oscar in his prime as a supporting, I think, kind of looks bad. I, I mean, agree. I, you know, I agree. Just from an academy standpoint, I think everybody feels the same yeah. way. 
and it's funny because they asked Leo during the Q and A's. These these they're like, uh, this is the first movie that you haven't headlined. Your name is not above the title in this one. And he's like, and it's very awkward for us all. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's funny. Uh, so supporting actor, it's a it's a well deserved win. Sure. Again for Christoph Waltz, I don't think. We really can argue with it, except um, you know if Samuel was in the category or yeah. if, if Leo was in the category, I'd say. But a truly great performance by the ensemble. I'm very surprised they didn't get a SAG. And that is an incredible year for a supporting actor, too. That's why we decided to review it. Yeah, I mean, was, the SAG nomination didn't come for Best Ensemble, which was aggravating, to say the least. Yes, I agree. I, I mean, in one sense, it makes sense because this is a very taboo subject and a very taboo movie, and... Look, we were talking before we hit record today. What's the difference? Why are we praising 12 Years a Slave as a piece of art and then everyone's so questionable with how Tarantino does his slave movie? There are differences. There's no doubt. I mean, yeah, there's... the hyper-realism. Yeah. We're going to get into all that, uh, this, all those distinctions for sure. But when realism is done, I, I do think it's it has an effect. There's no question Agreed. about that. And the characters and the performances make that happen. Let's get into some non-spoiler script thoughts here. And that's where we talk about homages to other films. I found most of these references on the Django Unchained movie reference guide from the Tarantino archives, which has been a great site yeah. throughout our study here. Of course, the title character is named after 1966's Django, a film by Sergio Corbucci. Apparently someone was writing a book about him at the time. <laughs> Franco Nero has a cameo. In this movie discussing Django's name. Very funny. The, with with uh, Jamie Foxx's character. The is silent. I know. <laughs> there are several references to D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. Several references to Gone with the Wind. And many references to exploitation films and spaghetti westerns, including 1975's Mandingo. The blood sport at the center of the film's second act is is, a, is akin to that film. Something with uh, Calvin Candy is also akin to The Mercenary in 1968. There's a bar named Minnesota Clay in this film, which is the title of one of Corbucci's earlier spaghetti westerns. The Horse Fritz is a horse that takes after Roy Rogers' horse Trigger, who also did tricks. And by the way... Jamie Foxx used his actual horse. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool to see. In this movie. Actually, it was a gift from one of his friends years ago, and it's now in a Tarantino movie. As for some more Hollywood classics and classic literature, Cleopatra is referenced a few times, as well as the Three Musketeers in the novels of Alexandre Dumas. Okay, here's my question. Tarantino's going to be homaging all these films like he always does. He has a, a rich history. He's got a film collection of his own right. If he was this film nerd all his life, He's doing this and seeing these movies in the age where you have to rent them from somewhere. You know, I mean, there's okay. no Netflix, there's no internet, there's no anything. <laughs> the spaghetti western is not like a genre that every blockbuster has. He grew up watching them. So but he where did he get, where did he see them is my question. Like, when he was okay, a kid? Yeah, like where... Saw him at the Grindhouse. He saw him at the local theater. He saw him from the library on Channel, these are so channel obs- 8, man. These are like so obscure, some obscure titles that are not shown in like big public forums or weren't blockbuster films. To me, it sounds like all of the niche horror genres that we love now. Yeah. You could find spaghetti westerns and exploitation films back then and Grindhouse films all right, back then maybe. in the same way. But maybe not in the same way but you can go to the way we go to those movies like where was a young Tarantino finding 1975 Mandingo he did work at a blockbuster which probably had right but I think of my blockbuster growing up right I'm not finding yeah I'm not finding these films there even though I 
if I wanted to seek them out. But we could find uh, the Halloween 6, the rise right. of, uh, you know, whatever. So you think schlock horror has replaced kind of schlock grindhouse? It's it just a oh, different Oh, definitely. Era. I mean, yeah. think about the slasher genre. You're probably right. So you watch an obscure slasher movie. Well, no slasher movie is obscure. They're mostly <laughs> obscure, Michael. All right, best original screenplay. This was the winner that year over Amour, Flight, Moonrise Kingdom, and Zero Dark Thirty. Other than Zero Dark Thirty's script by Mark Bull, I would say this is the clear winner, is right? Is that an incredibly weak year for original screenplays? It's kind of weak. Well, you know, it's definitely not deep because Michael Haneke got a nod for Amour, yeah. which is a movie about two old people right. stuck in a house. And I'm shocked that the Academy would nominate that. Well, in some ways, yeah, I agree. I, otherwise, they were also honoring the actors that took that, that role, those lead roles, yeah. I get that. You but you honor them where they did. They right. honored them in the rest of the other categories. Flight has its highs, no pun intended. Is it Unreceived, a, though. Is, is it an Oscar screenplay? I don't think I so. Don't Zero Dark Thirty, I, I agree. I, I, I could see that being in there, but I also think it would never be. It would never win because it's way too controversial a film, uh, which is ironic considering that we're talking about Django right now. Yeah. Let's finish up that Oscar lens now with talking about Best Picture. Argo won. You had Amour, you had Beasts of the Southern Wild, Les Mis, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Silver Linings Playbook, and Zero Dark Thirty. I remember this being like my 10th film of the year that year. I think it was somewhere around hmm. there for me. I, I was a little lower on it. I mean, probably because of the shock value. So I, I agree, like, all right, nominate it. I don't think it's the best movie of that year. I mean, Argo did some things, and Silver Linings Playbook was a favorite. Zero Dark Thirty was a favorite. I yeah. Re- I enjoyed Beasts of the Southern Wild. I remember really wanting Zero Dark Thirty to win Best Picture. Right. But knowing it probably wasn't going to be the case. I'm most surprised today, after having done years of study in this type of thing now, where mm-hmm. we are. I think if I were to be presented this list, I would have a tough time talking myself out of Lincoln, just based on what Daniel Day-Lewis did that entire performance. True. Lincoln really has really grown on me. Yeah, same here. Really has grown on me. That's an incredible performance. And a best-of-the-decade performance, no question. That Yeah, I, I mean, that what Daniel Day-Lewis does in that movie is like a top 10 all-time best actor performance, I think. And that's not to take anything away from this movie. I, I was... More entertained on this rewatch of Django than I've been the first... I think I've seen it three times total, so the first two times. I I think I appreciated it more now, especially what the, from Tarantino's perspective, and especially from Jamie Foxx's perspective. And let's talk about the studio perspective for a minute. Of course, in a year where Daniel Day-Lewis is up for Lincoln, they're pushing everybody they can to the supporting actor category because right. that thing was sewn Fair up. Point. That thing was sewn up when the production stills were released. That's an all-time performance. <laughs> that is an all-timer. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely, absolutely right. All right, so let's uh, get into let's our Let's go out section. to the movies. Let's... And now for your spoiler warning pleasure, the Mike Mike and Oscar Theater Company presents a Quentin Tarantino scene reenactment interpretation. You unarmed? Yes, indeed, we are, Marshal Tatum. May I address you, your deputies, and apparently the entire town of Daughtry, as to the incident that just occurred? Go on. My name is Dr. King Schultz, and like yourself, Marshal, I am a servant of the court. The man lying dead in the dirt, who the good people of Daughtry saw fit to elect as their sheriff, who went by the name of Bill Sharp, 
is actually a wanted outlaw by the name of Willard Peck with a price on his head of $200. That's $200 dead or alive. The hell you say? I'm aware this is probably disconcerting news, but I'm willing to wager this man was elected sheriff sometime in the last two years. I know this because three years ago he was rustling cattle from the B.C. Corrigan Cattle Company of Lubbock, Texas. This is a warrant made out by the circuit court judge Henry Allen Laundermilk of Austin, Texas. You are encouraged to wire him and he will back up who I am and who the dear departed sheriff was. The menfolk of the town with rifles begin trading looks. Then Dr. Schultz delivers the coup de grace. In other words, Marshal, you owe me $200. This is the spoiler section for the movie Django Unchained, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar as part of the Quentin Tarantino rewatch series. If you've not seen the movie yet, this is a good place for you to hit pause. Go watch it. We'll be here waiting for you when you come back to hit play. If you've seen the movie already, or if you're just curious to hear our takes about what happens in the spoilers and in the plot, or if we piped up the spoiler section for you so much that you cannot possibly go another minute without hearing what does happen in the film, this is the place you want to be. All spoilers all the time from here on out as Mike, Mike, and Oscar covers Django Unchained by Quentin Tarantino as part of the Tarantino rewatch series in the lead up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The way we start the, every spoiler section in this series is that we we talk about what we have coined as trademark Tarantino. We talk about what is considered classic Tarantino, sneaky, underrated classic Tarantino, and also un-Tarantino things. So, Michael, what do we have to start off with in classic Tarantino? He's back to the episodic storytelling that he began with his career doing and mastering, essentially. We have three-part sequences. We have scenes one, two, and three for each one of these episodes just the opening of the film. We have the opening credits in the march through the desert. We have Schultz kills the Speck brothers and meets Django, followed by Django coming with him. There's a three-part, three-act structure, essentially, for that episode of the film. We move on to the next episode. He kills the sheriff. Now you can go get the marshal. You owe me $200. And then we thought that would be the end of it. That's actually the middle of it. Then we have, now you choose your character's costume. Because the real spine of that narrative, of that episode, is to get Django on board with him and to convince Django. It's a negotiation scene for Django. Or a negotiation sequence, I should say. Then you have the Big Daddy introduction, killing the Brittle Brothers. and Easy then the, to say. The Bagheads. A lot of B-words. Good thing I'm almost B-word fat, but I'm not there yet. But, Mike, that effing bags head scene was actually really funny, but that's you have three-part sequences throughout this film, three-part yeah, episodes. It's You wouldn't say to a layperson, or I don't think a layperson without actually studying this stuff would, would be able to come up with, that Inglorious Bastards is actually the departure from regular Tarantino filmmaking, because not only is he back to three-act structure here, like you're describing, he's also back to circumventing... The trope and circumventing expectations. I mean, right. with the encounter, like we just heard from that beautiful reenactment from that uh, theater group that we just listened to. They're pretty good. They should be on the come up somewhere. Uh, <laughs> when we have the encounter with the sheriff, this is the big bad sheriff. He's decked out in black. He's walking with all kinds of swagger. Why you want to show your ass in Bill Sharp's town? We think we're building through this huge battle. And no, Schultz is just going to shoot him right in the chest right there in front of everyone. Cut like, him off. Like a dog in the streets. <laughs> 
it's crazy. And I, I really, as a screenwriter, as a wannabe, I, I, can't, I can't help but just admire this structural prowess because it's just one, two, three, simple every time, nails it. It also tells me, like, if he goes to TV, like he's talked about, mm-hmm. after his filmmaking career is over, mm-hmm. and he wants to do theater productions, he wants to write novels. Sure. If he does, in fact, you know, make a miniseries, he's going to be able to do it because he's been oh, episodic. No yeah. He's been episodic his whole career. No question. Not, no question whatsoever. I have another classic Tarantino, and that's when we do meet our antagonist here, the real antagonist, the Calvin Candy. Sure. We're back to just letting the antagonist shine, right? I mean, we're letting him dominate scenes, never mind being well-rounded and all this. I don't know that even Candy can be considered well-rounded, to be honest with you. There's well, not a lot of glowing parts of his best friends with Samuel Jackson, in a way, or he's, he loves Samuel Jackson. Who's we, suffering we from that. the worst Stockholm Syndrome we've ever seen any character oh suffer from. Oh, my God, he is. <laughs> so, I don't know there's a lot of redeeming qualities about Calvin Candy, but, man, is Leo dominating scenes, and Tarantino just letting him flourish like he usually does with his most notable antagonists. I think the fact that Candy respects Django is is a rounding of that character that he respects. That's a fair Schultz. point. That's a you really know, good point. When you have main characters and when you have favor put upon them yeah. by the antagonist, even, even though he is one, that is a mark toward that character, towards the audience accepting. Yeah, I think that's 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 not something I thought. Of. I think that's a really good point. The fact that he doesn't, he knows there's a difference between how he's treating Django versus how he's treating his own. For lack of a better, I hate using the word slaves. By the way, I'm I'm really trying not to use it in this kind of context. But I, I I apologize. But that's how he treats his own slaves. So how is this movie funny? Like there is tension relief in this movie to to an extraordinary level. It's like I laughed harder in this movie in this in this rewatch. So your point is that it's classic Tarantino because there's no way we should be laughing at anything with like, the movie on this basis, I'm and yet tearing up yeah. in previous scenes and I can't get over the comedy in this movie. What kind of dentist are you? <laughs> uh, the baghead scene is legitimately funny. Now, we all could agree that the bags could have been done better. Look, I love the guy. I, I have a huge problem with the scene, how it fits narratively in Tarantino's thing. I actually have it as un-Tarantino because I think it's the wildest tangent that he takes us on in any of his movies. Right. But it, you're, there's no doubt it is funny in that scene where the guy's well, the one playing Peacekeeper to everyone. I think everybody respects the effort, but I think we do this one with no bags, and next time... Yeah, very funny. You silver tongued devil, you. <laughs> yes, I mean, that's hilarious. hilarious. Got birthday cake inside. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> Killed me. And then shooting the sister at the end. Yes. Like that scene, oh my God, it's the height of it. I'm just clenched. And they shoot the sister and she literally gets like yanked. Flies across the room. Yeah. Like with a, with a get her off the stage yeah. type of yank. I'm like, God. You're right. Uh, and this is what he's always done. He makes you laugh at the inappropriate and certainly at the most inappropriate times. And we're removed from like by mere minutes from the utmost depravity. And, oh, yeah. And we get a legitimate belly laugh. How he puts us through this gamut of emotions, I don't know. I mean, the man is one of the most manipulative filmmakers going. Wild human being. Absolutely wild mind, a wild directorial mind. You got any more classic here, Mike? No, I'm ready to move on to underrated uh, and sneaky stuff, but go ahead. If you got it, finish us off here. It's a quick one because this is yet another revenge tale, and it might be his most polished revenge tale yet. We hit on this when we were talking about. Look, behind the curtain here, folks, we've recorded a billion episodes in a row getting ready for vacation. This is yet another one of those. But we talked about recently in some episode we recorded, so you may not have heard it yet, that this is, and this is why subgenres aren't really a thing. They are in some cases, but not in most. This is a buddy revenge movie? A buddy road trip revenge movie? It's a revisionist western in a way. Yeah. it's. But you're right. It is a buddy 
western revenge movie. Yeah, yeah uh, bizarre, right? I it's mean, definitely a revenge movie. Certainly, without question. Uh, it's a revenge movie structure. We have the most polished one of those here. Uh, without question. And again, it's just him doing... Now, whether he wanted to do a buddy road trip movie or he wanted to do a spaghetti western, as it seems like with all his quotes and stuff, that was his main focus. There's definitely a buddy road trip episode. Sure, yeah. My point overall, though, is being he's, again, taking one of those minor subgenres, those minor genres of filmmaking, mm-hmm. and making the best, most polished, most efficient version of it. And doing it again, like he did for the Grindhouse cinema, like he's done for the Kung Fu movies, like he's done every time he makes a movie. And if you thought it wouldn't play at the box office, no. Half a billion dollars says it does. Yeah. So yeah, let's get into the underrated and the sneaky classic. All right, I'll, I'll let you drool, but the food, again, he's been yes. doing it lately. I don't know what the importance of it is. I think it's just, to, in this case, to find the delicacy and just yeah. kind of how prestigious these people, the Candyland, is. That he focuses on not only, you know, he focuses on the beer, like you said, the frothy beer at one point. But the but dinner it, at Candyland. On, in Candyland, he focuses on, like, the china, the very fine silverware and That's the plates. It's a Downton and, Abbey yeah, montage. really is. That is a Downton Abbey montage when they put set the table. And this is something he did starting in Inglorious. He hasn't done it until Inglorious Bastards. I'm curious to see if he does it in The Hateful Eight, too. But starting with Inglorious Bastards with the whipped cream scene and moving on now to, to where we are in Django, he focuses, food is a big emphasis. And Inglorious Bastards, the subtext of the food was for manipulation purposes with yeah. Waltz's character. For Django, I think it's just a status thing. I'm not positive. I can't find any more emphasis than that. It's interesting, the choice of music for that scene where they're setting the table. It's like the saddest music, isn't it? Yeah. It's just... Oh, da, da, yeah. Da, da, da. <laughs> I don't know the words. I think they're French. <laughs> it's really sad. You're white-knuckling it throughout the rest of the plot, and that's my first sneaky classic thing. You know, when I saw Inglorious Bastards, you know, I remembered being so freaking nervous the first time I saw Aldo getting captured because i figured he was going to be tortured by the ss and same thing with kill bill 2 when she's buried and i just was so nervous for these characters even though i kind of knew what was happening in kill bill 2 mike the tension in this movie is unsurpassed by maybe any other film i've seen in the last crazy five years yeah and i remember when i watched this the first time i could not be more clenched than I was at the time I watched this movie. I was freaking the F out. And that's why I was looking around the theater, trying to see how everybody else was taking this horror. This was such a brutal experience. And that is not something we haven't seen from Tarantino before. Like the the scene in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. You all know that scene. Like I just said in Glorious Bastards, he does this a lot. And then he has these, like, to bring it full circle to where I cut myself off in my own speaking. That's how crazy I'm getting in these (laughs) podcasting uh, sessions. You got a beautiful, gorgeous scene of them setting the table for dinner. And it's it's one of those atmospheric things that he's able to do. Especially, I mean, the tension could not be higher than when Stephen has the conversation with Candy in the back room, reveals the plot of why Schultz and, and Django are actually there, and then Calvin comes back and does his little charade. I absolutely agree. I mean, that's total. If nothing is going to clench your butt cheeks together, like something like that, I, I totally co-sign. You need a crowbar to get my butt cheeks <laughs> apart after this movie. Don't take that one out of context. <laughs> that's a drop. Uh, well, what sneaky else Tarantino for me, the chaotic neutral, you could call it chaotic good protagonist we had our introduction to schultz he's most like the good bad guys that pretty much were in reservoir dogs even though those were objectively bad guys and schultz is an objectively good person but it's still the protagonist quote-unquote of the film one of them anyway in this case 
he's chaotic. I mean, he's the type of guy that will shoot you in the face if you point a gun at him, but still return to you to ask if you have a bill of sale because he's professional like that. So the, f- the completion of his arc is something I'm going to talk about with Tarantino. It makes sense to me now because of what you kind of just said, even though I didn't get all the words you were saying, <laughs> but chaotic good for him to essentially be an anti-hero right. as a bounty hunter. He has to finish his arc a certain way, and I actually agree with it upon rewatch when I yeah. just ranted about it. You know, in that 2012 retrospective, probably the 10th episode we ever recorded or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and I think his apology before he meets his end yeah. has great significance there, too, for kind of making that whole thing that we had a problem with previously okay. How much wiser we have grown. Yeah. <laughs> My last underrated classic thing here is that he's a master shot master, and this is most obvious in the action scenes, Mike. We talked about this in Kill Bill Volume 1. Tarantino's action in this movie is mostly conducted in wide shots. And it's incredible because you have all these squibs timed with the shooting of the guns. They must be on timers together. You can't, I mean, they have to be connected electronically, right? I read something that said he ordered the biggest squibs that any stunt coordinator had any, ever seen yeah. before for this movie. I get that because the <laughs> giant explosions of blood are really comical, which is strange because it's a definite contrast from the... The realism that we get with all the violence against the African-American characters in this. Yeah. Which is very, very strange. Because, again, you're going through this roller coaster of emotions. All the white people died. I saw this on YouTube videos. The white people died. Bam! Explosions of blood. Ridiculous. Hyper real. And then when you have the, the violence against the slave characters, it is very reverential. Yeah. And it uh, should be. And it and should it, be. And it's ground. And that's why he walk, he's, he's able to walk this fine line. There are parts of this that are cartoonish, like there isn't any Quentin Tarantino There's movie. jokes in the right. shootout with the guy who kept getting shot and the human shields that he, we keep using. But why I think I'm okay with most of what he did here in his approach to this type of movie is that he, he seems to know what should be handled with respect and what is okay to be goofy with. Yeah, you can kill Nazis and slavers right. and be goofy. Right, exactly, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, finally, I, I have stunts that they went wrong. Like Leo cut his hand in this movie. Oh, yeah. And Christoph Waltz fell off yep. a horse. Riding uh, a horse isn't difficult. Falling off is. Dislocated his pelvis in the training. That's why they had to use the wagon. They had to use a wagon for the so early part of the shooting. I read that Shoot. story. And by proxy, that would mean that the wagon scene with the explosive was written in after the fact? Because he wasn't going to have that giant tooth made of dynamite beforehand? I don't know. Because that plays a big role in the plot. The Jonah Hill plot line was completely different before right. the movie started. Right, and so, he had to, he had his own contractual issues anyway with a different film. And I, I'll talk about that in Easter Eggs. But yeah. I, I wonder where that... Because, yes, I read that as well. That's why Schultz came in on a wagon. And yet the wagon ends up playing a huge role with the Big Daddy character. I think Tarantino, he, he revises his scripts throughout the production no. process and even, you know, getting close to the actual shoot of the film, he's willing to change it. And yeah. he did. And, and for the fact that, you know, Jamie Foxx was cast so last minute. Yeah, He's Good willing point. to change it. So, Mike, we're ready to go into Untarantino then. So, before we get serious, I'll talk about what I hinted at before, the bizarre mm-hmm. offshoot of watching these masked riders, these forerunners to the KKK, argue and have this comical conversation about eye holes and the masks and the pillow covers that they wear over their heads, etc., etc. First of all, furthest <laughs> tangent that I think he's ever taken us on. Just right. bizarre, in it's general. Completely. 
what the hell is the point of it? So we're making KKK members well-rounded? Look like buffoons, but also act like normal people in a way, because normal people can be monsters. What the hell is the point of that? Who cares? I think he's trying to make them look stupid. And he succeeds. Spectacularly. All right. I, but, sure. And it's a funny scene. It is. Objectively, it is. Because they look stupid. They're right. the butt of every joke. Right. I just thought it gave them more well-rounded personalities that I didn't How need from How does them. it work in that sequence? Well, they outnumber the two by a lot of people. So Obviously, you yeah. need them to just run away like cowards and bullies. And you need them to do that. Right. Scatter. I, I don't know that... If I would be any more be. convinced that they did that because I saw how they are as people as opposed to I would believe well, they did that just because they were surrounded by dynamite. And well, exploded. there's one thing explodes, but if they're like seasoned soldiers, all of them, you know, after the Civil War, yeah. then they might regroup and hunt down these people. Yeah, you're making, so, a, you're making fair arguments. I just don't know that it's enough for, for me to buy that that scene was necessary in this cut. But I, I, I don't know. That's my own thing. I thought that was very off base for Tarantino. Tarantino's done this before in a in a way like he liked the Michael Park scene as Esteban, right? In Kill Bill Volume 2. Doesn't play that much in terms of the plot. He'll well, that just gives away it. where the antagonist is at the end, though. He'll just, but you come away from that movie remembering what buffoons these, sure. you know, D.W. Right. Griffith characters were. I think it's probably the funniest scene in the movie, so... Right, you remember yeah, that right. scene. If that's, yeah, if that's where you want to go with it, that's fine. I just thought it was wholly unnecessary. Don't ask me your mind for nothing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's, they're idiots. And that's why they would scatter, I guess. But you're right that why do we have to relate to... Like, if we related to them the same way we related to the characters in Black Klansmen... I mean, Spike Lee does a little bit of this with Walter Hauser he shows their buffoonery. Yeah, Yeah. he shows them being lower intelligence, certainly. He makes us kind of like that character because he's such a goofball. It's it's a little similar. Yeah, I I, I mean, like I said, you're making fair arguments. I just... Not for me, I guess. You're about to get serious, so let me just dive into my major point here and it's a character known for his smarts coming out of the Hans Landa performance Christoph Waltz's character of Dr. King Schultz makes the dumbest mistake imaginable completely putting his alliance with Django in the utmost peril when he shoots Leonardo DiCaprio it's the dumbest thing. He allows his pride to get the best of him. He allows his need for revenge, his bloodlust, yes. to get the best of him. Yes, we're shown the flashbacks, and I get that the flashbacks kind of take over and make him rage in that scene. Even though he's a cold-blooded killer during that scene, he does apologize. All the racist talk with the skull, everything sets Christoph Waltz's character of King Schultz off Right in that scene. Now I get it. Now I know why. Obviously, you know why it's necessary. The mentor must die for the hero to succeed. Your parents must die for you to take over the family. Blah, blah, to blah. To be Batman. Yeah. To be Batman. <laughs> the other Batman must be recast right. for the new Batman to be cast. Um, and he must be Robert Pattinson. <laughs> this is where I bring in what I said before, though. I think the apology that he makes right after he shoots Candy... Apologizing specifically to Django, and yes, on the surface level, it's, you know, I'm sorry for having to do that. I shouldn't have done it. I know. Not only is he apologizing because he's wrong, I think he's also apologizing for doing what he knows was Django's kill. Yeah. He should apologize for basically, you know... Endangering Django's life. Yeah, and uh, 
they were going to get away with the bill of sale yeah. and, and be scot-free. I, I think agree. maybe, right. maybe not. Maybe they would have been hunted down. Yeah, May, uh, who knows? And, and maybe that's the other way you can look at it too, is that he pulled the trigger because he didn't think he was getting out of there with his life anyway. I don't know. I kind of felt like I saw it like you did. Like I thought he would have been okay to leave, but I, I just think there was that there was multi multiple layers to that apology. And if he was apologizing for doing what he knows was Django's whatever destiny to do to have this confrontation with Candy anyway, it kind of makes the fact that the white guy is ending up playing hero in this superhero slave movie more okay to me to to get from a to b or more likely uh, you know l to m yeah that m is a pretty phenomenal n because sure. the sequence to follow is one of the best shootouts awesome. i've ever seen awesome it's one of the greatest shootouts ever and and we talked about him being able to make a gun foo Slash shoot him up. Well, he kind of did already, so he may not make Kill Bill three shoot him up just because he did here. That is the craziest shoot him up scene I've ever. And he ever gives watched. Django so many wins at the end of this storyline too. That it, again, should Django have been the one to kill Candy ultimately? In my opinion, yes. I, I still, you know, I don't think it should have been Scholz's kill to do. But nonetheless, he gives Django a lot of wins, and that makes it more forgivable that this is the road he goes down. Yeah, I, and and Stevens scarier he might be scarier than candy i think that's i I don't know if he is i think that's an underrated aspect of this too in that when the chips are down i mean say what you want about tarantino and his issues with race and 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 how he writes these characters and stuff but when the chips are down it's the black characters that are outsmarting and more resilient than every white character in this movie i think that's on purpose i think so too and i think he should be you know i think that's that's a good thing if you're gonna make a movie like this yeah you have to right you have to but it should be recognized, right? That he handled that properly. That should be recognized. You know, Samuel Jackson's a power behind the throne. That's Samuel's own words. Right. So it makes some sense. And uh, Django is able to keep his composure when when Schultz out in the field can't take Candy torturing that slave anymore, so he offers up to buy him for $200, and Django ultimately talks him out of it. Well, you also have to show your characters making mistakes, I would say. Like, the heroic thing to do there would be to talk Candy out of doing what he did to D'Artagnan there. That would have been the heroic thing to do, but it would have definitely hurt their enterprise in saving Broomhilda. It also kind of gives you reason to let those characters suffer, you know, because they didn't do the most heroic thing in the scene previous. They didn't save that character. They didn't save Broomhilda beforehand. You want them to shoot this fucking place up much sooner than they do. So you have to kind of, again, stretch the rubber band. As Tarantino liked to say in *Inglorious Bastards*. Uh, great points. We got some worse scenes, Mike. Okay. I mean, yes, <laughs> a white man using this language writing this movie is problematic. Right. Um, and we've talked about Tarantino's use of certain words and certain language, and how issue-ridden it all is. There is plenty in this movie that substantiates and lets any kind of viewer know that this person does not like black people. This person is a racist. It's a slave owner, etc., etc. Right. They deserve some kind of ultimate comeuppance. And you could talk about whether it's the the symbolism of the K- early KKK days, guys riding around in white hoods. You could talk about, obviously, the plantation and the implications of that. I think there's enough here that, again, I know it's a slave movie. You still, To me, you don't need the words at all. I don't think they're necessary. I think there's enough here symbolically that you can just see. It's plain as day to me that these people act these ways. My 
answer would be an argument of degree, I guess, and I, I don't even like my argument here because in other movies from Mudbound to 12 Years a Slave, you have the word used whatever many times. Right. I, I don't know the numbers, but it's much less than 108 or 112 right. in this movie. There's a gratuity here. There is a gratuity yeah. here. Can you ground it in realism enough and not use it 112 times? I think you can't. Now, these are worse scenes in a way because they're hard to endure, but they really make this movie's triumph work. Like, if you don't see the cruelty on display, if you sugarcoated any of the racism, if you sugarcoated the violence, this movie might not work. Agree. Like I, the, I mean, they're, they're, you know, you're making a movie about racists. Like that is part of this movie. If you don't see the Mandingo fight and you don't know what that is... That's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. So one man's death, murder at his hands, essentially, is another man's entertainment. What about that scene alone doesn't indicate how Calvin Candy and company feel about black men? Do you think you can show the extreme scenes Yes. and you don't need all of the filler? That's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Maybe. Sidney Poitier and and Quentin Tarantino sat down for this uh, before the production, and Tarantino's like... I don't think I can have Americans portray this. I, I don't. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Brazil. I'm going to go to the Philippines, and I'm going to film all these plantation scenes. And yes, they'll have once removed, but this is my way out. This is my plan. And Tarantino described this to Portier. He described this in the interview circuit. And Portier is like, Quentin, you can't be afraid of your own movie. And if you can't sugar, you can't you can't sugarcoat this. Jesus. And you got to man the fuck up, said Sidney Portier. And actually, Tarantino, I'll give him credit, he does a great Sidney Portier impression when he described this. And you can't get away from the disgusting nature of this, the repugnant nature of it. Otherwise, it's probably not going to work, and you're going to be afraid of your own movie, and it's not going to work. That's very interesting, and has a lot to do with one of the Easter eggs I talk about, and how Leo himself was having a very, very difficult time yeah. with the certain dialogue that his candy character was given. This is hard to watch, and yeah. I'm going to call this a worse scene, but it's perhaps the most powerful scene when D'Artagnan's humiliated. I, it made me cry on re- rewatch, and it was the scene I dreaded the most. I wanted to fast-forward it. I, I, I just had to stick with it. I spontaneously burst into tears because when he's like, are you going to reimburse me? What the, that's the most fucked up thing. Like when D'Artagnan just looks down and he's humiliated there. My God, you've already put this guy through everything imaginable, every horror imaginable. And then you do that. Oh my God. That movie is, is powerful. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Powerful film. Even with the gratuity language. Uh, It's one of those movies that upon rewatch, upon study, it wins you over in a strange way. And because of the effects that it has on you, like, what are the effects? Like, I understand, I have have a glimpsed slavery through this movie in a more powerful way than I have many other movies about slavery, I would say. Yeah, it's it's, it's the closest we'll ever come to kind of feel, I think we we have any idea. Right, I mean, there's no way we can relate or have any kind of perspective on that. But am I, I am more horrified by slavery sure. and racism watching this movie than I you am. You would think. I mean, it movies. makes the stereotype of what you think slavery is in your mind real to see it on screen like this. Yeah. And yeah, I think it does make it easier to relate to in that sense. That's not to say that we're ever going to be able to truly relate to what it's like to go through that. Right. I understand that. So I'll quote Kerry Washington then to kind of sum this up because Kerry Washington talked about this is not a movie about slavery where the, the characters are powerless. 
And mo- in her opinion, most of those movies are about powerlessness. And this movie is about gaining power over the situation and about an empowered group of people who get out of it. So I think that's what makes how much Django comes out on top in all the improbable situations after Candy is shot important. Again, I don't want to throw a diss at 12 Years a Slave because it's the same storyline. Harriet is going to be that storyline. Yeah, you know we need those empowerment of stories. Of course, they're all the same. That's why they're all you know when they're well done, uh, nominated for Oscars. But this is definitely one of those. Yeah, I, I again, I just go back to I think it's you know, in any other movie, having the protagonist win on so many fronts against so many odds, mm-hmm. I think we might critique it. I don't know that we necessarily would for sure, but a, something short of a superhero movie, we may have issue with how much Django overcomes everything at the end of the day. Right. In this case, I'd almost say it's necessary because it's there is so much trepidation, so much awfulness that's shown that has to be shown in some ways that it's only righteous and righteous and right that you show him persevering because it is about a man becoming powerful and finding his own claim in the world and standing up for against injustice and against horrible, horrible atrocities. And the the whole end of the film where it's basically Django just win, 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 mm-hmm. end of movie, right? I I used to have a problem with that. I was like, where's the dilemma? Well, the dilemma was echoed much earlier when he had the gun on the, the kid and the father, really the father, who was the outlaw of the Smitty Bacall gang. Mm-hmm. That was a dilemma. And he already talked himself up out of the uh, LaQuint Mining Company, right? That was another great escape. After that, you have falling action in Act 3, where he just wins three or four times in a row. That's fine because he needed to become that stone-cold killer that he was training to be the whole time to get out of this. And that's what Tarantino was saying, that this is what slavery turned everybody into because what happens two years after the setting of this movie, Civil War. Yeah. I I mean, and Tarantino, for his part, he did, like, Django doesn't just fly away like Superman, right? I mean, he does get caught. He's antagonized by Walter Goggins' character when he's caught. He's antagonized by Steven once again that he's caught. Sure. He's sold to the La Quinta Mining Company, but he's able to overcome all of that, which is right. the winning that we're talking about. And I think that, I think you're making great points, and I think it's, again, I, I do think it was necessary for this film in particular, uh, and necessary in a way that if Tarantino didn't do it, I almost think we, I, I think it would have been a huge problem. I really do. I think it would have been a, an even a bigger, oh, bigger ordeal. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I agree. Before we move on, the last point I want to make now, saying all that and giving Tarantino all that credit, who's the big bad guy that's even worse than anything that happened at Candyland and is going to be the guy, the representative of the La Quinta Mining Company who cuts out people's tongues and is just the worst, awful human being and you don't want to go there and it's every... Sl- who's cast as that guy? Well, it's, it's, it's Tarantino. Tarantino. So... And I know he filled that role just to save time because he wanted another actor and it, it was written for someone else and it, it didn't happen, so he just wanted to save time. There's always an excuse when it comes to him. He's always got an answer for any time something like that is questioned about and him. he didn't use the word. We talked Which about is a, that previously. Uh, stunning and good. Maybe that's an example of him actually learning. Maybe, but he still cast himself in that role. And maybe don't use the word another hundred times in the film. 
We're, we're, yeah, that's that's definitely good. a worse for us. Definitely that'd be good. Worse, as All we right. come out of the worst section with uh, screenwriting advice from Tarantino. I got something relatively small here. This is from an article on westword.com written by Karina Longworth where she interviewed Tarantino. And here's a quote from him. I I usually want my first scenes to be pretty good, if for no other reason than to keep people excited when they read the script. All right? And to keep me excited. Oh, hey, this is a good idea. Now, she talks about and she analyzes his script. This is the author. Karina Longworth as the first scene of the movie being a conversation, gunfire, blood, and ultimately liberation. Essentially, it is the movie in microcosm. And I thought this was a great point. And I think Tarantino's often cryptic about what he says. It sounds like a meandering quote. Yeah. But Tarantino puts a microcosm of his movies. He puts a scene that parallels the end scene. This is what they teach you to do in screenwriting school. That's not a thing, but screenwriting <laughs> class. He did this one in Glorious Bastards and Kill Bill. The first, the opening scene, we analyzed it like crazy. That interrogation scene is parallels the end of the movie, parallels the whole entire movie. Right. It's also, with in terms of expectation and result, it gives you the formula that you're going to follow throughout that entire movie. Kill Bill strikes parallels with, if not the first scene with, with Bill in it and the bride getting shot up. Of course, that's a bookend to what you're going to need to do with killing Bill. Hmm. It all The scene following that with Vernita Green, with the kid involved, that will give you a new movie, hmm. is, it parallels the, fin- the finale yeah, of... Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? That's interesting. The bride getting away. You have to do that with bookends... Of the quote-unquote extraordinary world in the middle with the ordinary world on the bookends. And he does that again here with slavery being a thing, but with redemption at the end of that scene and Schultz and, and Django teaming up just like Django and Kerry Washington team up at the end of it. Well, I guess this kind of shows you how mu- how much he must re-edit and edit his scripts to death because the advice that I want my first scenes to be pretty good just to keep me interested. Like, that seems so blasé. I'm reaching. But basically, when you analyze it... Exactly. That's that's kind of my point, is that, like, does he does he not able to find the words on first blush that he's trying to get to a bigger picture anyway? I wonder how long, because he's such a master of dialogue in his movies, how long must it take for him, for the guy that is answering the question of, I want my first scene to be pretty good, to get to where we get to with Inglorious Bastards and the witty dialogue and all that? I mean, this guy must be just painstaking at his scripts all the time. And I he, wonder he if he be. has these words at his disposal, if he just kills himself to get to where he finally gets to. I think he's also internalized a lot of the structure that, that he needs. Oh, he sure. Yeah, I would agree with that. And he's really smart. It's weird because, like, in an interview, I do that impression of him, and he sounds like a buffoon in a way. He doesn't come across all that intelligent, and yet these scripts are brilliant. Yeah, he's certainly it's, a genius, without question. It's, it is without question. So let's get into Easter eggs and the connections to the Tarantino verse. So I, we've hinted on a couple of these all throughout the episode. I tried to reach. I'm, I'm not trying to do the... Look, everyone knows the story about Leonardo DiCaprio with his hand, so I've tried not to tell that one. Uh, we'll see how I do here. <laughs> I don't think i found many nuances that people don't know, but we'll see. Uh, what culture reveals that this would be Leo's first film in 16 years? This is something you already brought up, as a matter of fact, that he doesn't have top billing, a fact that supports the argument that Leo's first Oscar probably should have come for his movie uh, where he's considered a supporting actor in that category mm. as even his billing suggests he was a supporting piece as opposed to Walter again was given the biggest campaign from the movie in the supporting actor category. Again, I'm wondering, wouldn't it make sense for Leo also to say, hey, don't campaign for me for this? Yeah. 
Right? Well, on a couple levels, I guess. But I, I was talking more about the level that, like, I don't want the supporting actor, Oscar. <laughs> That's not Leo's brand. Not for this. Right. And yeah, and for this totally role especially, sense. yeah. Because these gross roles, as hard as they are to play, you don't want that to be what you're, you're remembered known for, for. Your legacy, yeah. I'd rather be known for fighting a bear, yeah. Sig Haig must have difficulty <laughs> at times, right? I mean, <laughs> all, those, all those actors yeah. who play these despicable characters all the time who make a career out of it. Yeah. How do they do this? Mm-hmm. Well, Very that's, tough. That's why Ray Fiennes did Made in Manhattan after he did the Red Dragon movie. Yeah, it is why. <laughs> uh, there's all sorts of stories regarding Leo's onset nuances and the difficulty he had with the Calvin Candy character, it being his first out-and-out villain, at least in nearly 20 years, with another movie, which I won't spoil, being the first, technically. But DiCaprio reportedly had a bunch of issues with speaking in the way Tarantino wrote Candy to speak. According to various sites, Leo actually had to stop in the middle of film sometimes to gather himself, appalled at the grotesque language Candy was using towards the likes of not only Django, but also Broomhilda and Schultz himself. During one such incident, Tarantino would pull the actor aside and tell him that fans would revolt and hold it against Leo forever if he didn't go all the way to the extreme with this role. Mm. And in another such incident, it was Samuel L. Jackson who offered words of wisdom to Leo in his time of soul-searching by reportedly remarking, quote, Motherfucker, this is just another Tuesday for us. Oh my god. <laughs> Samuel was really fun in all the interviews. He, he This was a great role for him, too. He does get noticed for this role enough. He was, he was spectacular. Awesome. When he cries yeah. after Candy dies, oh my God, yeah. what a performance that Amazing was. Amazing job. Jonah Hill, you brought this up. He was supposed to play a bigger role in this movie. He got caught up with the filming of the movie The Watch, which kind of got all his attention and why he was only subjected to a, a one-off, one-scene shot. But he was supposed to play this role of Scotty, who had this entire love angle written in that he was supposed to have bought Broomhilda at a different auction and fallen in love with her and then this whole other storyline involved in this movie. Glad that wasn't it. Didn't happen. I agree with you. (laughs) Finally here, we'll talk about the Tarantino-verse and some of the realer-than-real versus movie movie characters and setups here, as we always like to end on. Tarantino is on record as saying that Django does, in fact, have a reference to another character in his Tarantino-verse. Really? But it's such a tiny and nothing reference that he, at one point during an interview, couldn't even remember who it was. Reddit did, though. On the bill of Smitty Bacall and his Gangs Wanted poster, there was a reference to one Crazy Craig Coons as one of Bacall's gang members. That Crazy Craig Coons is an ancestor to Captain Coons, the man played by Christopher Walken, who gives the watch back to the young Butch after telling him of how his father would be damned (laughs) if he would lose his property, so he stuck it in the only place he knew they wouldn't find it. Up his ass. <laughs> in Pulp Fiction. This proves, however, that Django, like Pulp Fiction, must take place in Tarantino's realer than real universe. All right. So this is realer than real. These, so these are actual people, according to the Tarantino verses. So this is not a movie that characters in Tarantino's movies could go see at the theater. So how about Kill Bill Volume 2? Kill Bill is the only one of his canonical directorial efforts. That is pretty universally regarded as a movie, movie, movie. Now, I I basically can blow up this whole Tarantino verse Good, once give and it for to all. Because Angie Han on Slash Film says the grave of Paula Schultz in Kill Bill this, Volume yes. 2 is supposedly the wife or ancestor of or connected to Dr. King Schultz. Is that just a coincidence? Fans think this is a theory on why... Well, uh, something's connected, but 
that would blow up the movie movie and the real realer than real. Here's what I'll say on behalf of both Mike and myself with regards <laughs> to the Tarantino verse building here. Did I get it? You guys got to do more work. Because <laughs> there's so many plot holes with regards to Butch's car, this gravestone. There's enough holes that you could poke he in these theories. He just liked the name Schultz. Right. <laughs> All right. When he came up with character names, Paula Schultz, and he liked the name you Schultz. You might have to go back to the drawing board to get more concrete evidence that these movies are what they're, everyone's saying they are in regards to realer than real versus movie movie. But that's all out, I'm saying. Shout out to Angie Han. That's yes, a deep Yes, of course. Cut. That's awesome. Mike, that's it. That's Django. That's a lot. That is a lot. That is certainly a lot of, it was a lot of movie and it's a lot of analysis from us. As always, we want to know your thoughts about this movie, about any Tarantino movie that we have covered, about anything else really that's going on here in the MMO empire as we lead into and lead up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, Mike's going to tell you what we have coming up next down the pipe. I will just be here to tell you as always that to get us those comments, questions, concerns, shout outs, hopefully Apple Podcast reviews as well, you could reach out to us at Mike Mike and Oscar on Facebook, Mike Mike and Oscar on Instagram, at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike Mike and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We're available everywhere. You do hear podcasts, tune in Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, etc. etc. Just type in Mike Mike and Oscar. You'll see our big smiling cartoon faces waving back at you. This is the point where I kick it over to my dear co-host. He's going to tell you about some things coming next. He's going to tell you about some words of wisdom and get you out of here on a happy foot to go enjoy your weekend, Michael. So, listen to our final episode of the Tarantino rewatch portion of this series. That will be on The Hateful Eight. We will also have a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood preview episode. We are going to put out part three of our mid-year Oscars report. Do you have this written down somewhere? See, this is pretty spectacular because we've recorded all these episodes out of order. So the fact that he's able to keep them chronologically correct for you, I'm doing that's the impressive. Easy stuff. I know we're doing one a week, <laughs> and we're doing one more week because we got of the Tarantino. We're doing one more week of the Mid Oscar. That's report. fine. I have no idea what's coming next. <laughs> I don't know when we're releasing the Netflix pod. We're doing a pod that's going right. to be on the Netflix. It'll be sometime award. this week. Yeah, yeah, the Netflix awards push. Right. So that might have just came out. Or it's coming out next. We also have MMOW. That's another easy one for me. That's every <laughs> beginning of every week, even though we might push this one out a little sooner. I'm already finding a bunch of crazy stories for us oh, to good. talk about in that one. We've also, we're watching stuff and we got an audience interaction once again where we play Six Degrees of MMO, the Six Degrees of Kevin, Kevin Bacon. I saw some of your guys' entries this, this on afternoon. On steroids, yeah. Crazy. It was awesome. Awesome. So we're glad we pushed that and gave people a little more time and they're crushing it. And Mike, words of wisdom, I don't know if I have any. It's just movie watching is crazy because, like, we were against this movie a year ago, mm -hmm. a year and a half ago, and now we're, like, for it in a way. Yeah, in some Strangely ways. Strangely won us over, and yet we're it's still abhorrent to our every be fiber of my being or what did <laughs> what did uh, frank langella say as president nixon i whatever. say when the president does it it can't be illegal yeah, that's not wisdom it's not the opposite of wisdom but let me just say movie watching pretty incredible it's, it's crazy We're doing a lot of it and learning a lot guys if you can leave us a review on apple Podcasts, hit click those five stars we really appreciate it this is mike mike and oscar so when reality sucks you can come watch movies with us we're trying to make award season year round without the stuffiness and we'll check you out in a couple days see ya <laughs> Coordination, screaming peace, cause they fear when my squad face them, take them